Ephesians chapter 3, we're on this series of family. The book of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. The goal of the letter was to inspire the church and let them know what maturity looks like for the believer and call them to do things together. You see in chapter 1, this prayer that Paul prays over the church of Ephesus, and he says, I I hope that you would understand, paraphrasing, the inheritance that you have with all the saints. And now in chapter 3, he's praying a very similar prayer, or he's telling them of of a similar prayer that he prays for them. And and he, he prays this prayer with them in the context of family now. And so maturity in the Christian faith doesn't mean being stronger by yourself. It means being stronger by others. We're with others. And that's one of the emphases that Paul places in this letter that he wrote to the church in Ephesus. Uh, It was written to Christians, and he wanted them to walk in the fullness of God's plan for them. You know, it's easy to sometimes compromise and be like, I just, just get, just get to church. But really, there's so much more than getting to church. It's more than getting to church and getting to a small group or participating in fellowship. It's really about experiencing and walking in the fullness of God's plan for you. And I believe that as Christians, we have access to the most fulfilling life possible if we would just lay hold of it. And that's Paul's heart in these letters. It's a small church. It's a young church. There was no church tradition. There was no Christian tradition handed down. They didn't know if they should do three songs and then pray and then go into the offering message. And then, right, they didn't know if they were supposed to do three songs and then have somebody come out and shout a little bit and then go back into the song and then shout and then back into the... There was no tradition, uh, you know, playfully speaking or significantly like substance substantively speaking there was there was no there was no tradition for them to walk from it was a church that was made up of people who used to be jewish and they certainly had their tradition and there were also uh gentiles in this church or non-jewish people so they were bringing pagan religions in and they were all here together and it was a brand new church and so how are we going to do church how would we do church if a whole bunch of people from these different backgrounds came to Sterling some morning and one of us, or, and I stood up and I was like, so I believe in Jesus. And we're like, yeah, we all believe in Jesus, but we bring this kind of tradition from our Hindu faith and we bring this kind of tradition from our Buddhist faith and we bring this from our Muslim faith and we bring this from, you know, our Jewish faith and I bring this from my secularist faith. There probably weren't many secularists, but that's cool, right? I watch TED Talks, you know, and... <laughs> That's my church, the church of Ted. And then, so then we came together and he's like, now this is how you do all of this together. This is what it's like to do it in an orderly way. This is what it's like to walk in Christ and to be in Christ as individuals and as a family and as the saints. I think because I've used the word saint two or three times already, I want to highlight that uh, a saint is not somebody who's up and above the rest of the church. The saint is, the church is made up of saints. It's those who are in Christ. And in some traditions, uh, the Catholic tradition being one of them, uh, they, they venerate saints and they hold them up in high regard and high esteem because they believe that certain things happened after this person's death. I don't believe in sainthood in, in that fashion or form. We as a church don't believe in sainthood in that fashion or form. I believe that anybody who's in Christ becomes a saint. 
Okay, so it's, but it's not to be venerated, not to be worshipped, not to be held in higher esteem than anybody else. But, but it's like we are the body of Christ. We are saints in, in Christ. And so um, I just wanted to highlight that because I know we all bring different things to the table in terms of when we hear words, what they mean to us. So we're looking at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. And uh, you'll notice we're going to start putting the, the verse up in Spanish as well as in English. That's the only Spanish and English that you'll probably see up on the, up on the screen. We have Spanish translation happening every Sunday now uh, because our community matters to us. At Sterling Middle School, uh, and we want to look like the community that we're in. At Sterling Middle School, uh, a few years ago, there was a, it was 48% Hispanic. Uh, and, and I was just told the other day by, by a teacher that it's upwards of almost 60% Hispanic at Sterling Middle School now. Sterling Middle School is just a few miles up the road. I need to get the stats for Dominion High School and Seneca Ridge, which is right next to us. But the idea is if there are people in our community who speak Spanish and will only understand the gospel if they can hear it in Spanish, then let's preach the gospel in Spanish. And so um, we're going to do whatever we can. If you're listening to translation today, I love you. Thank you for being with us and enduring as we figure out how to love you as a congregation. Uh, we're glad you're here. So you're going to see that starting to show up. If you, if you have a Hispanic background or you're Spanish speaking, please talk to me. Let us know. We, we need more translators. We also need to figure out how to, how to minister practically on the week in and week out basis in the community. So Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is God's word to us. Jesus, we love you and we're thankful for these words. We're thankful for your spirit which speaks through them. And we ask that you would teach us today. We ask that you would inspire today. We ask that we would be, uh, have a greater appreciation for one another and what you're doing in us and among us as a people today. In Jesus' name, amen. So this, this section of scripture starts off with Paul telling us how he's praying and who he's praying to. He says, I bow my knee before the Father. And that idea of bowing his knee tells us that this is an intentional prayer. It's not just that prayer that we pray on the way to work because the radio's glitchy. Right? Like, this is an intentional prayer. It's a moment set aside for prayer. He's probably not just picking something up and going, oh, while I'm down, God, uh, I really want them to understand things. He's taking time out. And he set a time aside and he's being intentional to, to pray these things on behalf of the church. And he's getting down in, in a position that's reverent, that's submitted, that's humble. When was the last time you got down on your knees in front of anybody and, and just and put yourself in this humble position at work? Like you walked in and you like, saw, saw your boss and you were like, oh, you know. Uh, you don't do that, right? Because we're not that reverent to our bosses. 
Uh, we're not that humble in front of our bosses. We're not that, that, we won't come that low in front of our bosses, right? But in the presence of God, it's a righteous thing. It's a worthy thing to get down, to get low, to get humble in his presence because he's deserving of our reverence. He's deserving of our respect. He's deserving of our worship. And so we, we bring ourselves low and he brought himself low and he prayed to the father. And he says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I'm going to talk about heaven and earth in just a second. But I don't think Paul was just uh, highlighting the father's resume. It's not, it's not a moment for resume. It's a moment for identification. It's a moment to clarify identity. And he's saying, I'm praying to the heavenly father. I'm praying to this, my heavenly father. And I'm praying to this, your heavenly father. And in this sentence, he joins this church at Ephesus, not just to one another, being, being this new collection of people who are gathering under the banner of Jesus, this new collection of people who are finding their identity at the cross with one another. He's saying, not only just you, Ephesus, but the people who are all over this earth who have called on the name of Jesus. That's who I'm joining you to. Not just to the people on this earth, church of, church of Ephesus. I'm also joining you to those who have gone before and reside in heaven at this time. Now, uh, it would be easy to read it and think, Oh, so everybody in heaven and earth, we're all the family of God and he loves everybody and we're all his children. And, and you know, there's that kind of thought in our culture that we're all children of God. Well, really, a child of God is one who respects the Father, obeys the Father, follows the Father, is submitted to the Father. John chapter 1 says that those who are in Christ Jesus have the right to become children of God. I would say that this is specifically speaking to believers. It's specifically speaking of Christians who are on earth and those who are justified through the atoning work of Jesus Christ who are already in heaven. Okay, so it's not just, it's not like me and, and, and everybody else who's on earth. It's me and everybody else on earth who calls on the name of Jesus. And it's me and everybody in heaven who has been sanctified and saved by the work of Jesus. Um, so there might be, we, we see similarities. We see that everybody was born in the image of God. But it's kind of, uh, they're, they're children who have strayed away from the father. They look like the father. They have in, like a, a kind of a hazy image of the father in terms of the attributes that we've all been given. In terms of the capacity for kindness, the capacity for creativity, the capacity for reason and, and, uh, and love. The capacity for these things is written on the hearts of all people. And so it's easy, it's easy to go, okay, so we're all the, we're all children of the same God. It's like, well, we could be. We could be. But you haven't allowed yourself to be adopted yet into the family. Uh, I don't want to belabor this, this point, but, um, as I already said, this idea of adding us into a family reiterates the, the concept he introduces in, in chapter 1 of, of Ephesians. And that's that we're not supposed to be doing this thing alone. Our inheritance is with the saints. The things that we have in Jesus are supposed to be with one another. My victory is your victory. Your victory is my victory. And we're, we are to do this and labor and enjoy the fullness of God together as a family. 
The victory that we experience as a, as a church, as, as Grace Covenant Sterling, we share with Grace Covenant Chantilly and Grace Covenant DC, but it's even broader than that. It's bigger than the Every Nation Ministries family that we're a part of. We actually share in the inheritance with the saints, with those Baptists down the street. <laughs> somebody has, somebody was Baptist. Tease you guys out. We have an inheritance in the saints with those who are Catholic, but have a saving faith in Jesus. We have an inheritance with the saints, with those who are Presbyterian and have saving faith in Jesus. You know, there's not extra credit for being a part of a good church with good theology and good doctrine. Being a part of a church isn't what saves you. It's Jesus who saves you. It's his redemptive work on the cross that saves you. And I think sometimes we think, oh, I'm a part of a good church. I'm a part of a good family. We've got a mission. We've got a vision. We're making disciples. We believe in the Bible. We believe in infilling the Holy Spirit. We've got all these things. So I'm, I'm good because I'm a part of this church. No, 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 you're good because of what Jesus has done. And so we need to make sure that we don't just fall back and get comfortable because we're a part of a good group of people. But we continually remind ourselves and each other that our identity is found in Jesus and what he has done on our behalf. And so this idea that we love movies. Oh, let me say it this way. We love movies with a Lone Ranger. Oh, we, oh, Die Hard, you know, Taken, Brave. Yeah, Tim, good one. That's a good pull. You know, we got these movies that were like, I love the one who goes out by him or herself and conquers. They conquer and they win and they take over and they do it all by themselves. It's like, man, that's inspiring. It makes for a great movie, but it makes for a terrible life. It makes for a dead end life. Life and Christianity, it's a lot like good food. It's best with good company. I food. What was the over under on that? I took me ten minutes to mention food. <laughs> Making wagers. It makes for a great movie, but it makes for a destructive life. I want to point out one thing that wasn't in his prayer, and then I want to highlight the three things that that he was actually praying for us to experience as a family in Jesus. The thing he didn't pray for is that we would love ourselves more and that we would have greater self-esteem. God, let them think more of themselves is not the prayer that he prayed. And I kind of wish he had because I would like to think more of myself. (laughs) And it'd be like, man, I, I would like an extra dose of I'm the man. I would love, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you, like, wouldn't you, like, if I prayed for you, wouldn't you love it if it was just like, man, I let Kurt know he's just, let him know about himself that he is awesome. <laughs> that he is great and worthy to be, not praised, but fed really well and <laughs> loved on, right? Tim Spong, wouldn't you love a prayer like that? Just, yeah, let him think, just love himself. But, um, but that's not the prayer that he prayed. It's not... Because he had something far greater and far more enduring in mind for us. Our thoughts about ourselves are just that, thought about ourselves. And a ridiculous thought about ourselves can be so quickly replaced with a good thought about ourselves to be only replaced with a ridiculous thought about ourselves. Because our thoughts about ourselves change and we change too. 
But Christ is the one who's always and forever unchanging. And so he's like, let me tie you to something that's not going to move because everything else in your life is going to move and change and sway and swerve. So let me tie you to the one thing that's going to stay static and it's going to stay faithful and he's going to stay holy and he's going to stay just and his purpose for you remains the same always and forever. I mean, this man died for you and nobody will ever take that away and he sent his Holy Spirit to be with you forever. Let me tie you to that God so that you can have courage and confidence, not in yourself, but in him. I had a meeting the other day and I wish I had been equipped for it. I I just wasn't ready. You know that feeling when you walk away and you're like, dang it. You know, like not like a comeback, not that kind of meeting where you're like, I should have said that. But like the, oh, I could have been like a real good pastor and said something inspirational. And, (laughs) but this guy, I, I was talking to him. I love this. I love this guy. And he goes, I hope he's not in here. If, 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 I guess I hope he is in here. This is for your benefit, buddy. Um, he's like, everybody around me is telling me I need to have more self-confidence. And he's like, you know, my, like all these people in his life. There was a list of like 15 people that he shared with me. And I was like, man, that's really good. And I was like, I'm about to be a, a jerk. <laughs> and I was like, man, bro, I hear you. And that's really cool that everybody's telling you that. Can I, can I offer a contrarian point of view? And I said, you don't actually need more self-confidence. You, you need more confidence in who Jesus is. In all of this. Because you're only as good as you are good. Your, your business prowess is only as good as your business prowess. Your patience is as only deep as your patience. Your intelligence is only as intelligent as your intelligence. <laughs> Which I just revealed my unintelligence. <laughs> we plumbed the depths. <laughs> but what he, what he really needed, and this is what I wish I had known to tell him, is what he needs is courage. You know, what you need in this life is not more self-confidence. What we need is courage to step out on what we know is true about God. And then live in accordance with that. In one case, it's built up on us. In the other case, it's built up on him. And because I believe who he is and I believe what he's done and I believe what he said and I believe what he said he's going to do, I have courage to stand up here on the stage and talk about who he is and talk about his promises for you. I have zero self-confidence. I could talk to you about some nachos. That's where my self-confidence is. But in terms of talking about gospel and talking about the plan of God, in terms of of saying risky things, it's not because I'm sure in myself. It's because I'm sure in the one who gave us this message. And I'm confident in the message. I'm confident in the person behind the message. I'm confident that he'll never leave us or forsake us. So there's courage versus self-confidence. All right, so what did he pray for us? He prayed that we would first have supernatural strength. Not just any strength, but a God-sized portion of strength. Strength for the inner man that wells up and overflows us. Because natural strength will only take us as far as our natural bodies can go. Natural inspiration, natural encouragement will only take us as far as it can go. I think it was Mike Tyson who said, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. (laughs) 
<laughs> How true is that? I thought I'd be a great boxer. I was, I think, a freshman in high school. And um, <laughs> we had some friends. We got together and we were going to box. And I was the youngest among these friends. And I, was, I knew I could, I had self-confidence. That looked masquerading as courage. Because it was idiocy. So I'm stepping in and I'm, I'm just hauling <laughs> off, throwing what they call a haymaker. <laughs> and I got punched in the face and my head hit the wall. I got hit so hard. I don't even know what I'm talking about it. Oh, everybody got to play until they get punched in the mouth. So that's how I learned that I wasn't called to be a boxer. I got the tar beat out of me. I had all the self-confidence in the world. Um, more confidence in God would have, would have given me the confidence to just sit down and watch them beat the heck out of each other. <laughs> but our natural strength will only take us so far. I'm going to preach on this Wednesday night. I'm at the Chantilly service, but I'll give you a sneak peek. At the Tower of Babel, you know how God says that he's like anything that they put their mind to, they'll be able to accomplish? And so he comes down and he scatters the people because... Because he doesn't want them being able to do whatever they put their mind to do. I've always read that in a superlative way. There is nothing impossible for men who gather together and they can do it. We could preach a really cool sermon from that. But, but really, God was saying, because what you're going to build is only what you can build. You can only naturally build what you can naturally build. You're natural men. With natural thoughts. And you will be able to agree. But the thing that you'll be able to build is is natural. And the reason God scattered them is because he wants us to be dependent on him. So that the thing that we build isn't just a natural thing, but a supernatural thing. It's like like if if I went into a preschool and I saw kids building with Legos. I'm I'm like, well, hey, you can only do what you can do. But with me, you can do so much more. You don't even, you, your, your imagination is even limited to what you can imagine. But supernaturally, God can offer us additional dream, additional perspective, additional hope, additional joy than is available for us naturally. That just gets me excited. So it's supernatural strength so that the supernatural things can occur and not just the natural And it's not just strengthening for the sake of strengthening. It's strengthening so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. We're going to need strength to have faith to believe that Christ is dwelling in our hearts. I have this conversation with my children sometimes. It's like, well, if Jesus is is living in me, why do I still want to do bad things? And my kids are like, Daddy, that's because... I'm just kidding. They ask, why do I still want to do bad things, Daddy? It's because he's forgiven us for the bad things that we want to do. He's forgiven us for our sin. But it takes strength to believe that he's still there, even though we stumble. It takes strength to believe that he's there, even even though we, we have weakness and we have failure and we have doubt. It takes strength. So he's praying, I pray that your inner man will be strengthened so that you can have the, so that you can have the faith to believe that Christ is really doing this work. When your neighbor drives in with an SUV and they look so happy in the yard and you're like, I'm a Christian. Why are they happier than me? Has nobody else thought that ever? Seriously? You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? The guy getting the awards on TV and you're like, but I'm a Christian, God. Come on. 
<laughs> Bless me some, huh? You know, and it's like, yeah, just the pastor. <laughs> but it takes this faith to believe that he's really doing what he said he would do because, because I, I don't know about you, but I didn't look different in the mirror when I surrendered my life to Jesus. I went home and I was still me. And it was a little bit like, oh, this is going to take some faith. Because <laughs> I still do ridiculous things. I still say ridiculous things. I still think ridiculous things. It takes faith to trust that he's really going to forgive a ridiculous man. Amen. So that Christ may dwell in your heart. And that's that divine dwelling. As he dwells in us, he will compel you. He will sanctify you and change you over the course of your life. Now, this compelling of Christ is not like the Exodus movie. The love of Christ compels you. That's a pretty terrifying idea of compel. And sometimes when I talk about the compelling of Christ, it, it means he compels us and drives us to righteousness and holiness and joy in the Holy Spirit. He compels us to good works. He compels us to obedience. He compels us to do the things that naturally we wouldn't want to do otherwise. As he, as he, as he indwells us, the way we relate to the Father changes. The way that we relate to ourselves changes. Not because I have self-confidence, but I have confidence in what he's done. Like, you know, when somebody's died for you, It helps you understand your value. Then when somebody rose from the dead for you, there's significance in that that can't be found in any other place of life. So the way that we understand who we are changes. Who you are changes. And then the way that we relate to others changes as well. Because the love of Christ provokes us, compels us toward love. This divine dwelling is not just for you. It's not just for me. It's so that we may be rooted and grounded in love. And at this time, I'd like to call an expert witness on roots. Uh, Glenn, could you go ahead and come up here, please? Um, Whoever's running sound, I've got a microphone that I've hidden from you. (laughs) On the podium. I didn't intentionally hide it. So Glenn's a friend of mine. He's a member of Grace Covenant Church. Uh, he has a horticultural degree. Is that what it's called? Your, yeah, that's ornamental your horticultural urban forestry uh, degree. Had a lifetime of, uh, a different lifetime of tree care. I don't know if it's in the, is it in the microphone? Can you guys hear him? It's a blue mic. We could just rock it like this. We don't just don't want it. We'll just... We're gonna to stand together. We're gonna to stand together for this one. We're tight, like aspen trees, rooted in love. <laughs> so, uh, so tell us about your degree again. Urban forestry, uh, ornamental horticulture. So basically, I was uh, studying to be a uh, a tree guy who knew what he was doing, not just a guy up in the tree with a chainsaw and a rope um, who wanted to make some cash. So <laughs> that's what I wanted to do. Um, so just as a uh, little trivia, you, I understand from your father that you were uh, the nas- you were the tree climbing champ you were, you were to in New York. Can you can you tell us about that? Oh, man. There's no redemptive thing to this. We'll fake something in a minute. I just... 
There's nothing more humbling than standing in front of you guys. <laughs> All right, so I won a couple things. Um, did a lot of uh, tree climbing championships, and um, there was a chapter in New York that I was very successful at. And, um, yeah, I wanted to be the top, in the top 20 in the world, and uh, I got there, I think. Nice. So I, I asked, uh, I was talking, I called Glenn last night when I realized that there's a lot going on with roots. I, I, I had another message prepared and, and, and I read the thing about being rooted in Christ and I was like, man, let, tree would be a great illustration here. And so I started looking around online and I realized it was fascinating about roots. And so what I wanted to do, Glenn, uh, is, is ask you a couple questions. Um, first of all, we, we talked about where roots are and how they a lot of them stay close to the surface of the ground mm-hmm. and, um, and the, the, the breadth of the, the roots. Can you just speak about that for just a second? Yeah, uh, the roots, they're typically underground. That's where they get their nutrients, um, oxygen, and um, they are generally bigger than the top, what you see. So there's more mass underground than what you see above ground. Um, it's it's quite a, an amazing dimension once you go to that level. So if you're preaching your own sermon to yourself by now, right, because you're starting to see the analogies and how this works, and you're going to see analogies at every point. But the idea is that as they are rooted and grounded in love, the love that's able to be demonstrated above above ground is completely dependent on what's what they're rooted in. We talked about how the roots are close to the surface of the ground. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me why? Well, they... Well, hold on. So let me clarify the question. So, so I used to think that tree roots go down and, and they're all really low and that the, the root that comes up in your yard is the anomaly, right? But it turns out that a lot of the, the roots are shallow and they even intertwine with grass roots. So... Yeah, so different types of plants have different types of root systems. A majority of the plants around here, they have root systems that stay within the first, you know, 12 inches to, to gather the nutrients in the water. Um, the, you know, the big tap roots to the oak trees, yes, they do exist. But depending on uh, the soil, you know, they may not be able to go as deep. Um, so they stay up high. And um, they're, they know where to find the water and the nutrients and the oxygen, the life. They will do things just because that's how they're wired. That's what they're compelled to. Um, so if there's an obstacle, they will go to the above-ground pool. And, you know, I mean, come, come from New York, so we had a lot of above-ground pools. But the roots would, you know, they would, they would just grow everywhere, under your sidewalks, um, under your driveways. So they knew where to find the, the, the nutrients and the water and the life. That's great. So... What happens, what happens if, uh, if a section of root is, is damaged? You know, they find life. I like to chop them up with my shovel because apparently I hate nature. I feel bad about it in your presence. Sir. <laughs> Sir. Okay. Um, David, I, I, I... I have no self-confidence. It's... It, it's okay. You, you, you did a horrible thing. You just made that one root turn into 30 or 40 roots. So. Oh, seriously? Yeah. It, 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 they just, 
they had this um, craziness to just grow even more roots where roots were damaged. So I helped the tree. <laughs> That's the only analogy you need there. Yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, last night on the phone about, about the freezing mm-hmm. and what happens when like, the roots stay shallow and, and there's a free, the, when the ground freezes, it has certain benefits for, for the tree. Right. So around here, the, the, the roots grow at certain times of the year, um, and that's in the spring and the fall when there's freezing and thawing that's taking place because the, the soils uh, are... Um, they're, they're broken up by that action. It takes an action for um, these roots to go into places. So there's, there's some pain there that they have to, to endure so that they can keep growing through to reach the, the nutrients that they need. So if you're preaching the sermon to yourself, <laughs> when the ground gets hard, when life gets hard, that's right. when things get frozen up and it feels impossible, you're saying that that's a good time for the roots. It's when they grow. <laughs> How about them apples? So I read that hydrangea, I can't say it, the certain kind of plant, based on the pH of the plant, the leaves will be different colors. And that got me thinking about uh, the fact that what we put in the dirt affects not just the dirt or the grass, but it affects trees and, and everything else, right? And it affects your, uh, your wardrobe. <laughs> if, if your plant is yellow or if you got a yellow shirt on, you're chlorotic. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but I just want to say, so what we put, because, because these roots are shallow, whatever we were putting in the dirt, does it, does it get absorbed by the tree? Does it, how does it affect the roots? Yeah, like so, so the roots, they're there for the support, um, and they're there to keep that plant upright. Um, they're there to you know, establish the strength that they need to keep that top upright since it's growing at the same time. It's getting bigger, so its roots are getting stronger and bigger as well. And then we talked about aspen trees. They have, oh, yeah. they have kind of a unique thing about them. Yeah, uh, one of the, the largest uh, living organisms in North America is an aspen grove out in Colorado. Um, you know how it's just like a monoculture of all these yellow trees that you see in the fall in these pictures, but they're all intertwined underneath, and it's, a, it's quite an amazing. What's the purpose of the intertwining? For strength. You know, there's a lot of uh, slope variations out there, so, you know, it's, it's better for... Um, the forest to stay upright when they can hold on to each other. Y'all are starting to preach to yourselves a little bit. <laughs> I'm, I'm hearing the resonance. In case you didn't preach the message to yourself, is we need to be connected to one another in love for strength. Amen. And to the past point, what you put in the dirt affects it. Yes. Right? Because you've got to be planted in good dirt. Um, and then just my, my, my last question. Oh, I got two more. Um, you mentioned something called, well, no, we'll skip that one for time. There's this thing called girdling where, where the roots can't go any further and they turn back on themselves and it chokes the tree. But I don't know how to preach that, so we'll skip that one. Yeah, let's, it's okay. Do you have a sermon on that one? I, no, I have, I have others. Okay. Do you, what, oh, you got, 
you preach one. Yeah, so, uh, so you know, when, when you have um, a situation where you know you're blessed in the Lord, right? You, you know that your roots are in a place where you can resist drought. Oh. Right? And, 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 and you know where your confidence is. Wow. Because you have what it preach takes. Preach that Psalm 1. That's right. <laughs> you can look up Psalm 1. He's preaching. Uh, so my last question. You mentioned the first, seed that, the first thing that comes out of a seed. When a seed goes underground or... Critical. The uh, seed, as you were kids, growing little beans, seeing germination, they throw out a tap root. And that's where it begins its life once it accepts the water. It accepts water into the seed coat. It, it starts to grow. It just does. So the first thing that happens... Thank you, Glenn. Give, give Glenn a round. So the first thing that happens is it drops this root in because it knows the most important thing that it can do is to be rooted. And the first most important thing that we can do is to be rooted in love. And if we're rooted in love, we're going to produce good fruit. And if we're rooted in love, we'll be able to thrive through hard times. If we're rooted in love, we know that even when things are frozen up and they're hard and they're complicated and they're confusing, if it's a short freeze or if it's a long freeze, we know that it's for our greater good because it's going to give us access to nutrients that we wouldn't have ever accessed otherwise. All of these things tie together. Well, we're rooted in love. Just a fly through, which helps us to comprehend with the saints the breadth, length, height, depth of Christ's abiding presence. It helps us to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge and that fills us up to the fullness of God. Paul's prayer was a prophetic warning to the church at Ephesus. We didn't know this at the time, but when you look in the book of Revelation, you see that the church of Ephesus did really, really good work. The only thing that, uh, that God had against the church of, e- of Ephesus in Revelation is that they wandered from their first love. Paul's prayer isn't that they would do a lot of work. It wasn't that they would do a lot of things. It wasn't that they would get a lot of stuff done. It's that they would abide in love. Because all the other things will come out of love. But the other things don't necessarily produce love out of love for my wife I do chores around the house sometimes (laughs) out of love for my wife I do chores around the house and I do hard things I do hard things out of love for my wife like Sean pointed out for Mother's Day we give gifts out of love but doing these other things for my wife doesn't necessarily produce love so this Paul the prayer this prayer that Paul was praying that they would have supernatural strength, divine dwelling, and that they would be rooted and grounded in love was a warning that, hey, the work of this thing is going to carry you away. The busyness of Northern Virginia, D.C. metro area, is going to take you away. It's going to carry you away. And you're going to be distracted by all of these different things instead of focusing on those things. Get set. Get rooted. Get grounded in the love of God and let the other things come out of that. So the love of God would supply 
the work. The love of God will supply the fruit. So instead of trying to make a lemon, dig deep down into the the earth, the soil. Dig down deep into the word, into prayer, into the presence of God, and let him produce the lemon or a fruit that you like more than lemons. More importantly, fruit that he likes. Because the fruit that we produce isn't always the fruit that he's looking for. You're grounded not by what you've done or how great you are, but by what Jesus has done and how great Jesus is. We have a responsibility to check the soil, to till the soil, to get the rocks out of the soil. We got to keep the bad stuff out of the soil. But he causes the growth. We want to water it with the word. We need to fertilize it with prayer. We need to, to tend to it and make sure that it gets enough sunlight. You could preach your own sermon. Make sure that it gets enough sunlight. Make sure that it gets enough, uh, it, it gets all the things that it needs so that the exchanges can take place. That, that your body needs, that your soul needs, that your spirit needs. Get the rocks out. Don't put what would kill a tree. What? <laughs> I would kill a tree. Don't let me. Ne- no, <laughs> that doesn't preach well. <laughs> what preaches well? Don't put gasoline in the soil in your yard. It'll kill a tree. Right? You got to put the right stuff in the ground. You got to put the right stuff in the soil. And that's our cooperation with what Christ has already done in the right place. Showing up on Sunday morning, that's good water. Showing up to small group, good water. Praying, good water. You're like These are things that are good that the tree needs. They're things that are good that you need. Christ will bring the growth. But we do have a responsibility to till the soil and put good things into it. We are being rooted and grounded in love. It's far greater than any self-confidence. And it produces fruit that is pleasing to the Father. And when we think of this in terms of family, we have the privilege and the opportunity of doing this with one another. We get to be part of the, the, the biggest organisms on earth by in, intertwining with one another and loving one another and joining to one another, cheering for one another, praying for one another, worshiping with one another, fighting for and with one another. <laughs> 